Welcome to Stars and Swords. I'm Alistair Stevens. In this episode, we begin our second season, our second book, our second adventure, and discuss the very beginning, only the first 35 pages or so, of Terry Miles' 2021 novel, Rabbits. This is going to be a particularly interesting season of the show, I think, because we're kind of breaking new ground. Rabbits was quite well-reviewed on release and seems to have achieved a decent commercial success, but it hasn't made an impact in scholarly circles. At least, not yet. So there isn't an established, thoughtful, critical discourse surrounding the book, which means that we get to be the first to crack this story open, to see where it comes from, to see how it works, to determine what's good and what's bad, and, and ultimately to explore what this book has to say about the state of modern storytelling and media culture. As you can probably tell, I'm excited at the prospect, but that untouched frontier, along with the very specific inspirations and touchstones and media influences which inform Rabbits, means that this episode is going to spend more time than usual establishing a starting point. To get to Rabbits, we have to begin with modes of narrative surrounding games, how they cross over with stories, and we're going to begin by talking a little about perspective. If you're a committed genre reader, particularly if you read horror or romance, you will no doubt have seen arguments online about whether first-person stories or third-person stories are more enjoyable, more engaging, more marketable, more effective. Which of these you prefer is absolutely a matter of taste, but we must recognize that they are tools suited for specific purposes. First-person stories like The Great Gatsby or Catcher in the Rye or Hunger Games give an intense and immediate connection to the protagonist, but they're necessarily limited in how much information they can give you about the rest of the world. The camera, in a sense, is always in a close-up. Third-person stories, like The Lord of the Rings, like Pride and Prejudice, like The Maltese Falcon, they give you a much wider view of the world, but they're less good at getting close to characters, at giving you insight into their emotional state. They are cameras always in a wide shot. So a good shorthand here is that first person gives you interiority, third person gives you exteriority. But what about second person? You listen to the podcast and you wonder, yeah, what about second person? Second person narratives situate the reader and the protagonist of the story in the same conceptual space. That is not to say that they are the same character, the same person, But they overlap in a way that the reader is kept separate, kept at a remove from the characters in other kinds of narrative. We might consider a branching path adventure book. You might remember Choose Your Own Adventure books from the 1980s, which I admit I devoured, already dog-eared and worn from my school library when I was a kid. The first of these books, The Cave of Time by Edward Packard, was published in 1979. And when I say the first of these, I mean specifically the Choose Your Own Adventure branded series, which included 184 books published between 1979 and 1998. The Cave of Time begins with a stern warning to the new reader. Quote, The adventures you take are a result of your choice. You are responsible because you choose. After you make your choice, follow the instructions to see what happens to you next. Remember, you cannot go back. Think carefully before you make a move. One mistake can be your last or it may lead you to fame and fortune. And this is a fascinating narrative strategy. And it's one that we absolutely have to understand if we are going to make sense of rabbits. Not because rabbits is told in the second person, but because it relies on the kinds of narrative constructions common to games. 
And those narrative structures fall into two categories, really. What we might think of as identity, that is, the reader and the protagonist existing in the same conceptual space, to some extent being the same person. And the second is collaboration. That is, that you, the reader, are playing along. You are following the rules. You are doing your bit to make the story work. These states aren't simple yes-no binaries, but rather a kind of scale. Obviously, you know that you aren't really the kid exploring the cave of time because you're really the kid sitting on the school bus reading a paperback, but you choose nonetheless to play along, to play the part. Similarly, if the stern warning at the beginning of the book were taken seriously, then no one would ever have capped a finger or a thumb in a previous passage when making a risky choice. I am man enough to admit that I have, and what is more, I bet you have too. But crucially, we don't break the intent of the game by, for example, reading the paragraphs in strictly linear numbered order. We might bend the rules, but we don't break them because we understand that the rules are, in some sense, the mechanism that is generating the story. Think of a Super Mario Brothers video game. In some sense, we are Mario, right? We experience identity. We look at the screen and identify with the character we're controlling. That's a me. And we collaborate with the game in order to produce story. There's no reason that we couldn't stand still at the beginning of level 1-1 and wait for the timer to run out and then do it again and do it again until we're out of lives, but we don't. Because that isn't the behavior the game is designed to elicit from us. We enter into a willing state of cooperation with the text. This, of course, is what we do with every story, because every story demands a certain interactivity if we're going to enjoy it, even if that interactivity is limited to, I will keep my eyes open and focused on the screen, or I will read the pages of this novel in successive order as intended. We always have to choose to enter into a story. And if you've been listening to my podcasts for a little while, you may well have heard me criticize the oft-cited phenomenon of the suspension of disbelief, the idea that a story must protect this fragile bubble of disbelief that keeps us emotionally engaged. I think that that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the natural state of human beings. We don't, in my experience, have a native skeptical disbelief. We have an earnest and pressing desire to believe. We want to invest ourselves in fictions. We want to care about stories. So we always, to some extent, identify with the characters in a story. That's what narrative empathy is, after all. And we always, to some extent, obey the rules laid forth by the narrative in order to enjoy it. In this way, the rules of second-person storytelling are not fundamentally different from the rules of first- or third-person storytelling. They're just more obvious. They're more prominent. So we bend those rules, whether it's keeping a finger in the page of the Choose Your Own Adventure book, or it's peeking ahead to read the last page of the mystery novel, or it's looking up the IMDb page for the show we're watching on Netflix. Since I've already touched upon Choose Your Own Adventure books and video games, let's complete that retro trifecta by mentioning Dungeons and Dragons, which also begins in the 1970s and reaches a kind of established maturity in the 1980s. None of these narrative technologies invented their forms. There are gamebooks of a sort dating back to the 1930s, and Jorge Luis Borges, who I would love to talk about on this show sometime in the future, writes about branching path design in the 1940s. Video games and tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons have their roots in military board games, where complex realities are distilled into simple rules and simple math. These games find inspiration in their predecessors in the 19th century, but it's science fiction author H.G. Wells who writes in 1913 a book 
charmingly entitled, quote, Little Wars, a game for boys from 12 years to 150 and for the more intelligent sort of girl who likes games and books. Wells, we should note, wrote this war game book and was a pacifist, so we might infer that the title is not completely satirical, but it is at least whimsical. So where does this get us? Well, to two places, I would argue. Every act of storytelling, whether it's told in the first, second, or third person, is to some extent manifested in the second person because the story is being told to you. But the much more important thing to understand here is that the 1980s sees a rise in explicitly second-person narratives, in interactivity, in stories that are meant to be played and played with. This is when we get the first movements in modern cooperative board games like Arkham Horror and Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. This is where we get the rise of interactive text adventure video games on early home computers like Zork and A Mind Forever Voyaging. We get the introduction of the first rudimentary online games, BBS door games like The Legend of the Red Dragon and early multi-user dungeons like Avalon. All of this is accelerated by the advent of the modern internet in the 1990s, but this massive interconnectivity of readers has another effect. It creates ongoing online discourse, conversations which exist between dozens or hundreds or thousands of people, which exists in an interpretive halo around the object itself. Prior to the internet, you could read a book and have an opinion. Stephen King's The Shining, it's pretty good. Maybe you would read a literary review, maybe two. Maybe you would talk with a friend, maybe you would even be in a book club. But in any case, the circle of responses you could see to this text would be very small, and they would usually be fixed. But fast forward to the internet, and now you can hear thousands of opinions about The Shining. And not just opinions, but interpretations, analysis, theory, speculation, argumentation. This has, as far as this show is concerned, two effects. The first is that mass media criticism is now an ongoing thing. The text is the anchor at the heart of a halo of discussion and argument, and the ebb and flow of consensus and counter-consensus is part of our interaction with the text. Think about the last big prestige TV series you watched, and think about how your social media feeds or your online reading or your favorite YouTube channels, podcasts like this, all contributed to your understanding, to your appreciation, to, hopefully, your enjoyment, or, I guess, worked against those things. Television Without Pity was launched in 1998, and if you don't remember the internet back then, it was at the forefront of both recap culture and snark. The other effect of this great on-massening is that for the first time, we had to prove ourselves to strangers. We had to establish our identities and our credibility if we were going to enter these ongoing discourses. And this is in the early days of the internet, where we were all going by online nicknames, often completely separate from our real-world identities. This causes many shifts in the social order, but the most important as far as we're concerned is the new value that we placed on knowledge as a social currency. And in these circles, that knowledge was demonstrated as a mastery of trivia. Suddenly, knowing the details of your favorite pop culture artifacts gave you credibility. And in the chaos of the online debate, credibility is power. Internalizing trivia becomes not just a solitary means of exploring your favorite subjects in greater depth, it becomes viable social currency. So let's pause this history of second-person narratives and of online culture right there, trembling at the precipice of the new millennium, and pick up another thread from a century before, though this one I'm glad to say will be much more brief. 
Because there's another way of ensuring the willing belief of the second person reader in a story, and that is to convince them somehow that it is not a story. G.K. Chesterton's 1903 short story, The Tremendous Adventures of Major Brown, posits the existence of an agency which creates for the individual a real adventure, that is, creates a fictional narrative in the real world, complete with characters and artifacts and plot customized to you, indiscernible from the real thing. The idea that we could, through art and skill, create a satisfying story that intersects with our real lives, allow us to live the fantasy, is developed through the 20th century and intersects in interesting ways with reenactment culture, with live-action role-playing, with murder mystery dinner table games. As we move through the 90s, that idea takes on an additional cultural pressure, inflated by the shift to online culture that we discussed and informed by the millennial-era distrust in the structures of power and society. This is the rise of conspiracy theory culture. And I'm talking about back when conspiracy theory culture was harmless and kind of charming and focused on UFOs and the Illuminati rather than the denial of proven science in order to sell veterinary-grade medicine to the gullible, the weaponizing of the disenfranchised in pursuit of crass political goals. I'm talking about a time when conspiracies were fun. In any case, these forces combine in the very late 90s to suggest a narrative space in which the real world is not as it appears. There is a conspiracy, there are many conspiracies, to conceal the true nature of the universe around us. These mysteries can be overcome through the application of intellect, and our reward is a story which feels real. These are alternate reality games, a fascinating area of the game story space, which absolutely, from A to B to C, informs rabbits directly. The history of the alternate reality game is absolutely fascinating, and I have to force myself to be swift lest we spend the next half hour in the mystery minds mapping the extent of the beast and I love bees and the art of the heist of digital narratives that adapt and expand the approaches introduced by alternate reality games, such as the uh, Slenderman YouTube series Marble Hornets, something that I've written extensively about in the past, through the rise of escape rooms and real-world games, through to Ernest Cline's fictionalized pop culture treasure hunt Ready Player One. In some cases, the narratives are completely linear. In others, the players, en masse, can solve puzzles, can gain access to more information, can interact with characters in the fiction directly, can move the course of events, and offer support to the protagonist. There are as many different approaches to alternate reality games as there are to the novel. But there are two real constants. Alternate reality games are supposed to be cooperative, that is, they're supposed to be solved by a group of players, usually online, and they are supposed to preserve the reality of the fiction, which is best exemplified by the unofficial slogan of all alternate reality games and gamers, T-I-N-A-G, this is not a game. Even as players are playing, they treat it as though it is real. When their investigations inevitably find things that breach the wall of the fiction, like an unfinished website or a broken puzzle or an IMDb page attached to one of the actors involved, then they respect that boundary and try to focus on what is intentional on the part of the game designers. This is part of our willing, eager suspension of disbelief. And I know that all of that was a blur. I know that all of that was complicated. Let's take one very brief and short example to demonstrate how alternate reality games work in practice. The video game Portal, a science fiction puzzle game about manipulating space to traverse test environments under the watchful eye and sarcastic commentary of an evil artificial intelligence, 
was a huge hit. It was smart and funny and really tightly designed. According to IGN, it is still the 23rd best game in history, and though lists like that are inherently kind of silly, Portal certainly left a huge footprint on the industry. It was released in 2007, was a huge success immediately, and it was also short, so it could be finished in three or four hours. So millions of players in 2007 bought the game, played it, finished it, and put it aside. In March of 2010, however, something strange happened. The game updated. And when players returned to it, partly because they had noticed this update on a three-year-old game, they discovered inside the game world that they had explored so thoroughly 26 new radios. When each of those radios were picked up and taken to a specific location inside the game, they started playing sounds, interference, and static with snatches of Morse code. Curious players recorded those sounds and analyzed them, finally finding a way of translating those audio files into low-quality visual images using an obsolete technology called slow-scan television. Resourceful players realized that eight of these 26 images could be manipulated to reveal a security hash which could be decoded to a Kirkland, Washington area phone number. Players tried calling it, but nothing happened until they dialed into that number with an outdated piece of modem technology and discovered the bulletin board system, a very primitive kind of website featuring a login screen and the name of the evil AI from the game. One of the other audio files containing Morse code could be deciphered to yield login information, which gave access to this digital repository of files from the in-world company which built the AI in the first place. It felt real. This was not a game. The story goes on and on, and eventually turns out to be part of the advertising campaign for the sequel to that original game, Portal 2. We don't have to go into the details, though, to get the sense of how it works. The players are presented with an introductory event or scenario, a rabbit hole in the ARG parlance named, of course, for Alice in Wonderland, indicated by markers called trailheads. And then, collectively, they solve puzzles in order to gain access to the next part of the story, and, of course, the next set of puzzles. The use of puzzles here is interesting, and part of the gamification of the narrative space. Traditional narratives feature what we think of as trivial progression. That is, the demand put on the reader to get to the next part of the story isn't exactly zero, but it is trivial. Turn the page, don't fall asleep, keep paying attention. Traditionally, we are essentially, if not absolutely, passive in the receipt of story. The addition of puzzles, though, creating what Espen Arseth called ergodic literature, or literature in which the path requires work, both slow the progression of the reader, create dams at which the mass audience will collect, preventing some readers from racing on ahead, and create a greater tension between work and reward. Not all ergodic literature takes this form. We should note ergodic literature is simply any text which demands non-trivial work from the reader in order to parse it. You might think of The House of Leaves by Mark Danielewski, which can be physically difficult to read, or Pale Fire by Nabokov, or If on a Winter's Night a Traveler by Calvino, which are more conceptually difficult to understand, or the more complicated versions of choose-your-own-adventure books, like the Steve Jackson fighting fantasy books, where you have to throw dice or solve puzzles or overcome enemies in order to continue through the story. So, we are now a long way from a colorful book with a rabbit on the cover, except 
we're not as far as we seem because all of these elements, games which take place in the real world, which preserve the illusion of the fourth wall, which themselves push back against the way that they are meant to be interpreted, the way that they are meant to be played, that move the reader in and out of the second person protagonistic role, which present clues and mysteries and codes to be solved, which speak to the underlying mysteries and conspiracies just under the surface of the everyday world, which interact with popular culture, which value the trivial knowledge thereof, which play with the discomfort and liminality of finding oneself between the known and the unknown, which in turn makes them very operative in mystery and horror spaces, which are embedded in and are a product of a relentlessly online digital culture. These things are all constituent parts of rabbits. Now might be a good time to remind you, dear reader, that I list further reading in the show notes of every episode of Stars and Swords, not just the texts that I mentioned, but also some extra things that I think might be interesting. And if you are interested in anything that I have just discussed, then you'll find the links right there. I would recommend starting with the 2005 book, This Is Not A Game, A Guide to Alternate Reality Gaming by David Zaborski. It necessarily focuses on the beginning of the alternate reality game era, and Zaborski sadly passed away in 2009, but it establishes a lot of what is important. And if you have traveled in those corners of internet culture where alternate reality games have been popular, or if you've spent time in massively online spaces, particularly pre-social media, then you might be thinking of another creative movement which shares a lot of the features of alternate reality games, collaborative horror fiction and modern urban legends, short and iconic frightening stories or tales of new monsters, new creatures shared online as though they are real, the phenomenon reductively referred to often as creepypasta, well, yes, that is also relevant, and we're going to talk a little bit about it next week. With that then, at last, let's turn to Terry Miles, and even as we do, we see hints of the kinds of storytelling that we've been talking about. Even Miles's online presence is infused with the kind of tone and spirit that informs his work. Visiting his website might lead you to the website for the entirely fictional Public Radio Alliance, which is the diegetic production umbrella for a number of narrative podcasts produced by the real production company Minnow Beats Whale. You might also find that some of these podcasts, such as their flagship show Tannis, are hosted by Nick Silver. I feel uncomfortable breaking the this-is-not-a-game layer here, but Nick Silver, who refers to Terry Miles as his cousin, is of course none other than Terry Miles himself. Which I mention only to show how deeply interwoven these ideas of fictionality and reality are. I mentioned this in the last show, but I'll drop it here again just in case you're picking up Stars and Swords with this season. Rabbits is based on two and a half seasons of a narrative podcast of the same name which started in 2017. I like the show a lot, but if you're new to the world of rabbits, I would recommend sticking with the book for now and maybe listen to the podcast after the fact. In theory, the novel is a semi-sequel to the events of the show, but that's not quite true, and it's certainly not simple, and the novel stands well on its own. There is also a sequel novel to Rabbits, which was released late last year, The Quiet Room. I have only read it once, but I must advise caution if you want to pick it up, because it really is only the first half of a two-volume sequel story, and that second volume hasn't been released yet. I don't remember if I listened first to the Rabbits podcast or to Tannis, the story of a search for a mythical utopian fairy-like city which moves in time and space. 
I know I listened to the whole of both shows in around a week toward the end of the 2020 pandemic. I listened to a lot of podcasts, you guys. But I remember then moving on to The Black Tapes and The Last Movie. And it's only while putting this together, this lecture, that I remembered that I still haven't listened to the show Fairy, which I'm told is a Spotify exclusive. Who knew that was a thing? I bought Rabbits, the novel, the week that it came out and basically read it in two sittings. As I mentioned, it is a fast read. I'm obviously rather predisposed to these kinds of subjects and this kind of storytelling, but what I found most interesting about the novel was the way that it sought to accomplish its goals, because this is a book of complex associations and subtle rhetorical and narrative strategy. It is interested in the clash between the modern and the ancient, the constructed and the natural, the pinnacle and the foundation, the painting and the frame. And I know, even as I say that, that it sounds hyperbolic, and I really do want to manage our expectations of the novel as we go into it, and the novel itself is actually a fairly straightforward thing, but this is a lightning rod for, well, for a lot of what makes this stratum of our popular culture fascinating. I think this book, which could be read superficially as a Da Vinci Code-style conspiracy plot-based thriller, is actually doing a lot. So with all that said... Let's get into it. The novel opens with two epigraphs, one real, one fictional. The real one, though real here should be doubly in quotes, is from Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead, and it is intoxicating stuff. Stoppard is one of my favorite writers of all time. The epigraph, which comes from the middle of the first act, comes as Guildenstern, who, along with Rosencrantz, has been exiled into the margins of the play Hamlet and are watching events unfold from an inseparable distance while dissolving into their own self-awareness, like Vladimir and Estragon in Waiting for Godot. This epigraph comes as Guildenstern is trying, in some sense, to soothe the rattled Rosencrantz, telling him, as we see, that the truth is an indistinct accompaniment through life. And when something accidentally brings it into focus, it is, quote, like being ambushed by a grotesque, end quote. The truth, whatever that might mean, is not comfortable and soothing, and it is not known. We survive despite its absence, and its intrusion can be startling. The only real truth, Guildenstern seems to imply in that final line, quote, that much is certain we came, end quote, is that past events are the only things which are fixed. The second epigraph is fiction. Quote, I first came across the game in 1983. My game theory professor took me to visit the site of the original laundromat in Seattle. The laundromat is no longer there, of course, but if you ask the manager of the restaurant that currently occupies the space, she might take you into the office in the back and let you see part of the original room. And if you order a big meal and tip the waitstaff well, she might even remove the large modernist painting that hangs above the fireplace and show you the graphic of the rabbit on the wall. Some true stories are easier to accept if you can convince yourself that at least a part of them are fictional. This is one of those stories. Shalini Adams Prescott, 2021. So we get some evocative details immediately. The painting of the rabbit will presumably remind us of the cover of this novel, a striking piece of iconography in its own right. The mention of the game theory professor situates the phenomenon of the game whatever that means, and we don't have enough information to even guess at this point, but it situates whatever the game is in the world of the academic, and possibly even the arcane, implying a kind of privileged or secret knowledge. The fact that this discovery occurred in 1983 demonstrates that whatever is happening, whatever the game is, it has been beneath our understanding of the world, of the quotidian, of the laundromat of all places, this whole time. 
But really, we're here for that second paragraph, for two lines in which the authorial voice speaks most clearly to the audience, echoing the this-is-not-a-game philosophy of alternate reality gaming. Some true stories are easier to accept if you can convince yourself that at least part of them are fictional. This is one of those stories. Now, this works in two ways, perhaps. The first is that, at the end of the book, we might wonder what is true and what is fictional within this fictional account. But the second is to put truth and fiction at the front of your mind as you read, encouraging you to be an active participant in the unfolding of the mystery. Is what you are reading true within the fiction? Is what you are reading true beyond the fiction? This is echoed, of course, in the first line of the first chapter, unattributed dialogue, quote, what do you know about the game? The first page of the book proper establishes both the physical space, albeit indistinctly at first, and the digital spaces which these characters inhabit, the deep web, private subreddits. The deep web, or the dark web, for those of you who don't know, is basically those parts of the internet which are not indexed by search engines. That is, they are online, but there is no way to find them by simply searching on Google or Bing. You have to find them by following trails or by being invited. It is estimated by some researchers that 90% of the internet is dark. And I'm interested here in the way that the deep web is being used in the way that the internet would have been used in the 90s. Anything could be out there. It requires a technical literacy which exceeds that of most people. And it needs and rewards an obsessive detail-oriented focus to navigate it in the first place. I find it fascinating that in 20 years or so, the surface layer of the internet has been so charted and integrated that it has become a comfortable public space, that Facebook and Pinterest and Amazon are lighthouses of safety and public discourse, public commerce, which just aren't considered dangerous anymore, or at least not dangerous in the ways that they used to be considered dangerous. There are people reading this book who would never have typed a credit card number into a web browser 20 years ago, would never have posted pictures indiscriminately online. Back then, lots of people talked about the internet as a whole, the way that characters in this book talk about the deep web. What's most striking about this first page, though, is the narrative maneuver that happens in the fifth paragraph. The narrative voice is giving us insight on the people gathered here in this space, the people who want to find out more about the game. That is what they came for, what they always come for. But then, in the fifth paragraph, the narrative voice modulates, and we're suddenly in a more direct second person. Quote, This was the thing that itched your skull, that gnawed at the part of your brain that desperately wanted to believe in something more. This was the thing that made you venture out in the middle of the night in the pouring rain to visit a pizza joint slash video arcade that probably would have been condemned decades ago if anybody cared enough to inspect it. And then, quote, this was the wild hair up your ass, as my grandfather used to say, end quote. So we get the mention of the wild hair, the rabbit, and then, bang, we're back in attributed dialogue. We're pulled violently out of the second person and back into the room, and I have to say, I think that this is masterful stuff. It feels like sinking into oneself in the midst of a crowded room, of recognizing things in the outside world that reminds us of ourselves and turning inward for a moment. And it accomplishes this with a complete technical transparency. Because it is possible to read this not as a transition into the second person, but rather as a use of the generic you, the singular impersonal pronoun, in a spot where we would more technically, more formally use the word one. 
we might read this was the thing that itched one's skull, that gnawed at the part of one's brain that desperately wanted to believe in something more. But the modulation into you is resonant in a text that is already talking about games, which are, as I've said, dependent on that second person. So let's spend some time here. This was the thing that itched your skull, the thing that gnaws at the part of your brain that desperately wanted to believe in something more. The distinction here is interesting. You are here because of the gnawing thing, but the thing that it is gnawing on, the part of your brain that wants to believe in something more, well, that is an innate part of you. It didn't drive you out into the cold night, but the parasitic thing upon it did. This mysterious something felt different. It felt like that one inexplicable thing. In fact, the text tells us it didn't feel like that one inexplicable thing. It is that one inexplicable thing. They are the same. The UFO you saw with your cousin, the apparition at the foot of your bed, the fear of the dark. Interestingly, two of those things are external and one is internal. It's not the feeling you get from the UFO, but the UFO itself. It's not the fear of the apparition, but the apparition itself. It's not the dark in the basement, it's the electric shiver up the spine. We might read this as a desire to connect the internal and the external, or perhaps the demonstration of an implicit assumption that these things are already connected, or we might wonder if the electric shiver felt in the dark is, too, something external to us. The rhetorical strategy here, though, is to situate the reader in the mass of people with questions and to establish the dominance of the narrator over them, over you, over us. You have questions, the narrator has answers. This is, of course, always the relationship between reader and narrator, particularly in first-person narratives, when the narrative voice can't tell you about things that are outside of their experience and knowledge. We see this authority, this authority of knowledge, as we move forward. The young woman, we're told, asks about fractals and sacred geometry, a valid interpretation, per the narrator, and the works of John Lilly, invalid, per the narrator. To tangent for a moment, I had never read of John Lilly before reading this book, and if you want to experience some wild speculation about the nature of the universe and the importance of psychoactive agents, as well as seeing one of the ugliest websites the late 90s has to offer, then by all means, go check him out. I don't want that to sound like an endorsement, certainly not an endorsement of his ideas, although I am grateful for his influence in the Lisa Frank cosmic trippiness of the old Sega game Echo the Dolphin. So, what we get in the text is a superficial first-level discussion of the game. But the game itself, the narrator tells us, exerts an influence like the truth in the opening quote from Stoppard. It is always there. It is a blur in the corner of your eye, but no one wants to see it directly, even in outline. The game, we're told, is the oncoming train. I'm going to highlight here because it speaks to the ways in which the book will interact with the artifacts of our shared media landscape. Sally Berkman, who dresses like a 50s librarian, we're told, finally breaks the seal on discussing the real nature of the game, inviting us down into the second level of discussion. And the narrator tells us that she runs the best Dungeons & Dragons game in town, Original Advanced D&D. And Original Advanced D&D is such an achingly specific phrase, it tells us a lot about these people. Dungeons & Dragons is published in 1974, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons is the second edition of the game, and it is published in 1977. It isn't revised until 1989, it's given another minor revision in 95, and then it's replaced with third edition in 1990. Oddly, though, it exists alongside what is known as the basic set for much of the 1980s, which is more accessible, affordable, and popular. Original Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, therefore, 
gives us a casual precision and an insider knowledge of the object. It situates us in the media landscape of the 80s, though those Stranger Things kids were playing basics at, which means that the players of Berkman's game are more adult, more sophisticated. It also tells us that the narrator knows the most popular D&D game in town, which means that they are A, local, and B, kind of a nerd. I am not going to footnote every one of the pop culture references in the novel, by the way, because there are simply too many of them, and most of them are set dressing, but I will call out anything that is unusual or interesting. The idea here of descent is an interesting one. I mentioned earlier that entry points in alternate reality games are called rabbit holes because of Alice in Wonderland, and a lot of language about mysteries and conspiracy theories make effective use of descent imagery. There's a world under this one. We're digging up clues. We're peeling back layers. We're going deeper. We're getting to the bottom of things. On one level, I think that this is semantically straightforward. We cover things up. We conceal. So we remove the top layer to reveal that which has been hidden. But a lot of these idioms, a lot of these turns of phrase seem to originate from around the 16th century in English, which is right around the time that archaeology as a scientific discipline is being founded and I wonder, and I am framing this very deliberately as ignorant speculation, so please get in touch if you have sources on this, but I wonder if there's a connection between the English idiomatic use of dissent to indicate a search for truth and the ways in which archaeology reshaped our understanding of history. And if you have a facility with other languages, dear listener, I would love to know if those languages have the same kind of idiomatic bias. In any case, from there, we have the scene where the narrator divests the audience of their phones and other devices, sealing them away in a wooden box. And you'll note here that the narrator is again blurring the lines between fiction and reality, deliberately evoking a conspiratorial atmosphere with the box, with the transfer of the MP3 audio file to the old-school analog reel-to-reel tape player. There is an element of performance here, of presenting the audience with what they want and expect but do not know. Not unlike the novelist who, in the opening pages of their work, wants to make you feel safe and excited, secure in the promise being made to you, but also eager to progress. The reason for this theatricality, we learn, is the playing of the Prescott Competition Manifesto, which we'll soon have presented as a kind of found-footage document-within-a-document transcript. And simultaneously, the narrative gives us both a clue, a trailhead, a marker, and then tangents off to demonstrate bad play, to demonstrate bad interpretive moves. The clue, the marker, is in the name of the manifesto. Prescott is one half of the hyphenated surname of the writer of the second epigraph. Did you notice? Did it ring a bell? Shalini is a feminine name of Southeast Asian origin. We're told in a moment that the Prescott Competition Manifesto was written by Dr. Abigail Prescott. Was the writer of the second epigraph her wife, explaining the hyphenated name? Her daughter, perhaps? We don't have enough information on it right now, but to present this coincidence, even if it is just a coincidence, and then to move into the discussion of Alan Scarpio is intentional. I'm reminded of Twin Peaks. I'm a little surprised, honestly, that I've made it this far into this lecture without mentioning Dale Cooper's instruction that when two separate events occur simultaneously pertaining to the same object of inquiry, we must always pay strict attention. Twin Peaks, absolutely one of the foundational texts in 90s millennial conspiracism. My point here 
is that the discussion of Alan Scarpio that we read demonstrates the kind of bad, superficial, trivial interpretation that good players avoid. San Francisco is in California is insufficient to connect Alan Scarpio, this mysterious billionaire playboy, with the game player Californiac. We're also introduced here to some useful language about the game. There are winners, there are iterations, there is something called the circle that seems to list the winners, but not, crucially, by their real names. From there, we move on to the account from Dr. Abigail Prescott. The game itself doesn't seem to have a name, we're told. Even its shape and scope have not been determined. We echo here the graphic of the rabbit in the laundromat in Seattle, which ties us back again to that epigraph, which we, as good players who perform the right kind of inductive and deductive processes, already have in mind because we recognize the name Prescott. Texts teach you how to read them. The manifesto itself, though, is short and more oblique. Quote, you play, you never tell. Find the doors, portals, points, and wells. The wardens watch and guard us well. You play and pray, you never tell. The rhythm of this poem is strange. The first line is in iambic trimeter. That's three pairs of unstressed and stressed syllables. You play, you never tell. The last two lines are in perfect iambic quadrameter. That's four pairs of unstressed and stressed. The wardens watch and guard us well. You play and pray you never tell. Right? That's eight syllables, which is in theory the same as the second line, but I cannot get the second line to scan in a way that makes sense, that makes rhythmic sense. If that line were also in iambic quadrameter, it would read, Find the doors, portals, points, and wells. The beginning of the line is awfully awkward. We don't usually stress the word the like that. It could be read as dactylic poetry, where three syllables grouped in a stressed, unstressed, unstressed order find the doors, portals, points, but that doesn't really work well either. And this is the point where the casual reader <laughs> this is the point where the casual reader would honestly have skipped the poem altogether, but the slightly more astute reader would probably move on simply deciding that Terry Miles has no talent for poetry. This poem just doesn't work. And look, that may be the case. But we are not so easily deterred, because it's easy to fix. If the line were, find doors and portals, points and wells, it would work. The forced use of the in the second line throws the whole thing off, and it's so conspicuous that I have to read it as deliberate particularly because the poem performs the same kind of pivot in the last line, using and to hold the unstressed position, separating play and prey. This, coupled with Prescott's description of the game as something amorphous, quote, a kind of fluid like the cytoplasm or protoplasm of a cell, end quote, coupled with the disjointed use of static in the recording, these things conspire to make me feel that this is deliberately unsettling, that this is deliberately impossible to parse into a simple, comforting rhythm. And this is particularly interesting as we move out of the poem back into the narrative voice. Quote, there it was, rabbits. So yes, the description of the game rabbits is right there, but also if we're reading carefully, if we detect that feeling that something is out of place, that the rhythm is not right, that there is something wrong, that too perhaps could be considered rabbits. We should note before we move on that both the Prescott recording and the manifesto itself suggest that the game is dangerous. The wardens watch and guard us well. But there's also something else. 
We don't talk about rabbits. The game is shrouded in secrecy. But the narrator is delivering an address, one that has been delivered before to 40 or 50 people, which the narrator describes as not that many. Because there's clearly a force acting on people to spread the information, right? That's why, according to the poem, you play and pray you never tell. And of course, we'll note the recurring use of the second person there to situate the listener and the reader both in the narrative. It is a second-person story. We'll note here the narrator's mention of Hazel, the most famous rabbits player of all time, and then we'll note that despite their intention, they never actually mention Hazel to the audience at the Magician's Arcade. Instead, this crumb is left for us, for the readers of the text, so that we will be excited when we reach Hazel's interstitial notes. The end of the first chapter introduces us to the mysterious man who has been heckling our unnamed narrator from the beginning, Alan Scarpio, possibly a.k.a. Californiac. Quote, Something is wrong with rabbits, and I need you to help me fix it. The most striking thing here is the final cherry on top of the trust that has been built between the narrative voice and the reader. They have admitted to lying to their audience, to engaging in theatricality, and here, at the end of the chapter, they retroactively admit that they also lied to the audience about meeting Scarpio in the past. The narrator is to some extent untrustworthy, but, we are led to believe, is telling us the truth. A few people asked me in advance of this episode if they should read Rabbits because they didn't really like mysteries, or they didn't really care about the nerdy kind of cultural detritus referenced throughout the book, or, in one case, because they had already read the aforementioned Ready Player One and weren't interested in repeating that experience. And in each case, I said yes. I think that this book is good, and I think that this book is smart, and I think that this book is worth reading— but if you aren't sure, I said, get it from your local library and read the first three chapters. Then, even more so than with most books, you will absolutely know for sure if this book is for you. And part of what I was thinking about when I gave that advice was this transition into the second chapter, this refocusing of the narrative, the shift of frame to focus on our mysterious narrator, Kay. Now here's the thing. Kay is never gendered in the course of this book. The fact that it is possible to read this entire novel and never notice that Kay is not gendered, that your assumption of their gender is sufficient and the prose skillful enough that it doesn't create friction, is impressive. Some readers are certain that Kay is male, some are certain that Kay is female, some are certain that Kay is trans, some certain that Kay is non-binary. Terry Miles stated, after the publication of the novel, that Kay is intended to be a woman, I, as might not surprise you, don't care that much what the dead author might think is true of the content of their book, but I also, I must admit, immediately read Kay as female and internalized that. I also, after reading the book, listened to the audiobook, which is narrated by the very talented Christine Lakin, which only confirmed the voice in my head. But, and this is the important thing, we can recognize the gender of Kay as being deliberately ambiguous and as being skillfully written. So I am going to try not to gender K here in my accounts, but when I am talking spontaneously, particularly when I am talking excitedly, as I so often do, I may let a feminine pronoun slip here or there. That is not intended to overshadow your reading of K. I would love to know what you make of K, particularly as we move forward. K's flashback to the late 1990s is 
beautifully handled, I think, as is their brief Holden Caulfield-esque autobiography at the beginning of the chapter. The nebulous semi-diagnosis of neurodivergence is interesting. It's becoming a very common feature of this kind of story about this kind of character. And I think that we might be able to draw connections between the medicalized but vague neurodivergent diagnosis and a more traditional, though equally vague, kind of specialness, which has been attached to young protagonists in this kind of story for as long as we've had literature. That discussion is probably beyond the scope of this podcast. But this idea of treating neurodivergence as a very specific kind of superpower, an ability that allows the protagonist to see the story more clearly than the other characters, it's interesting. It's not unproblematic. It is not without certain assumptive challenges, but it does situate this character in a very specific time and place. That, as I say, may be beyond the scope of this podcast. What's absolutely within the scope of this podcast, however, is the introduction to the mechanics of rabbits itself, as explained by Emily to her sister Annie. The impossible incongruity of the documentary about extinct woodpeckers it's the kind of thing that you might stumble upon on the internet all the time, the kind of thing that you might see 10 times a day, but fail to understand because you don't make the connection between these two disparate facts. The importance of that connection, the importance not of recollection, not of memory per se, but rather of the ability to synthesize the information at your fingertips into a greater whole, this is the great shift of the information age. This is what happens en masse in the 1990s. We start the decade with encyclopedias on the shelf and end it with Google. We start by valuing pieces of information for their own worth. You know this, you read this, you remember this. And end with any individual piece of information being at the most 10 seconds away. This focus on interconnectivity versus isolated facts is incredibly important. We should note here, too, the reference to Polybius, a famous urban legend about an arcade cabinet which didn't exist, supposedly part of a government psychoactive experiment. The legend says that the games were planted around Portland, Oregon, and were wildly addictive. The legend also says that governmental agents, men in black, would visit the machines to recover some kind of collected data. I am told that it shows up as an urban legend Easter egg in the Disney Plus series Loki. We learn that Kay and Annie have previously kissed, and again, we might make a lot of the discovery of a secret world of meaning and significance and contrast and contradiction and danger happening right alongside the sexual awakening of a teenager. But then we're in the truck and Tori Amos is singing and we're on our way. Kay acknowledges that this is a hair-up-your-ass moment, echoing what was said on the first page of the novel about what it is that gets a person interested in rabbits in the first place. And then we're racing through the dark, in the old truck, searching for a signal in the static, an act of faith that challenges both Annie and Kay, but in the face of which Emily remains certain. They hear a voice, they turn the lights back on, and in a moment, Annie is dead and Emily terribly injured. There's something very playful in the way that Kay situates the narrative in the late 90s through a host of details. The computer, the news group, the parents wanting cigarettes from the store, the Tori Amos cassette, of course, even the somewhat romantic and magical way that the radio is used, a means of sensing vibration out there in the etheric night. And something hard-edged and certain 
about the emphasis that they put on 1999 in the penultimate line of the chapter. The memory is experiential. It is not factual. The return to the present is starkly factual, which gives the words they recount in the last line additional weight and significance. The door is open. I think this chapter deftly characterizes Kay as a teen and introduces us to the mechanics of rabbits, to the danger of following the trail, the presence of the static buzz sound and the mysterious gray figure on the road. It also, rather cleverly, situates us in Kay's POV, continuing the narrative strategy of making us feel like a part of an in-universe audience. In the first chapter, gathered in an arcade to hear Kay speak, and then, in the second, alongside Kay as they become the audience, inverting the relationship in the first chapter. First we learn, then we teach. Or, in this case, first we teach, then we learn. We might even see Emily, quote, Annie Connors was beautiful and mysterious enough, Emily was a whole other world, end quote, in the same way that the audience in the Magician's Arcade sees Kay. On the next page, between chapters, we get the first missive from the mysterious Hazel, which stands in contrast to all that we've just read. The medicalized definition of gaming disorder, the somewhat prosaic advice to stay hydrated and to keep your friends and family informed about your whereabouts, is a deliberate deflationary tactic to pull us back, in some sense, to reality. The game had gotten away from Emily, but games require rules. They require bounds. They require finitude. Football can be dangerous, but if you follow the rules, well, that's a bad example because football remains dangerous even if you follow the rules, but at the very least, knowledge in a game is power. Understanding the rules, the mechanics of the game, makes you safer. At this point, in the wake of the woodpecker, we ought to acknowledge the undercurrent to all this theorizing and conspiracism. The truth, as we saw with Emily, was not necessarily dangerous on its own. Pursuing the truth was dangerous. The elk, in the first instance, might have been taken as completely natural, a terrible accident that provided terminal punctuation to some juvenile risk-taking and nothing more. But Kay's dream immediately, textually immediately, though in Kay's experience it was years later, Kay's dream immediately replaces the elk with the figure in grey which turns to face the truck at the moment of disaster. Dream Emily, Kay tells us, can't see it. Only Kay can apprehend both the image of the grey figure in the road and the voice of the woman on the radio. So let's pause to observe what is different in these two accounts, presented almost adjacently the one to the other. In the dream, Kay begins by saying that the grey figure is standing where the bull elk stood, drawing the direct comparison between the two. Then the static from the radio begins to fill the truck, but Kay can already see the figure in grey, which means that the headlights are not turned off. Annie has her head down. We might infer that this is also true in the real version of the crash, because we're told that due to the position of her neck, she died instantly. Strangely, we're also told that the grey figure slowly started to turn. A moment later, Kay says, at this point, everything slowed down. All of this suggests that the lights were on. Kay can see the figure. Emily is looking ahead and thinks that the road is clear, cannot see the figure, but can clearly, by implication, see the road. It may not be significant, but it is worth noting that the dream version of the scene is different from reality in many more ways than one. 
What really matters, though, is the pursuit of the night station and the way that rabbits works, the stitching together these scraps of information to create something greater than the sum of their parts. This shift, as I mentioned earlier, at the dawn of the information age from the value of isolated points of fact or truth to our own ability to synthesize these facts into something greater still... Well, I'm reminded of H.P. Lovecraft. I'm reminded of the opening of Call of Cthulhu. Quote, The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. End quote. This is the other foundation of rabbits, and of this kind of alternate reality game. Knowledge is dangerous, and ignorance is bliss. This is employed to heroize the protagonists of these kinds of stories, so smart, so brave, so outside the bounds of society, but in the hands of a skilled storyteller, it can provide a dual narrative function. It can present danger to the protagonist, but it can also tempt them with the safety, the simplicity of the everyday. So now we've seen rabbits in action, at least we might suspect that we have seen rabbits in action. As we begin the third chapter, we pick up with a K who is feeling that same fight-or-flight tension that we witnessed in the second chapter, which encourages us to read the account as somewhat linear. What happened with Emily is obviously in K's mind as they enter the diner with Scarpio, counting tiles and steps and seeing connections between the dodgeball game and the dodge challenger. And we take some time to note that combination of K seeing patterns everywhere, the grouping of tiles on the wall, the significance of the baseball cap, and the introduction of K's coping strategy, tapping out tennis matches. This is an interesting response to the interposition of meaning on the randomness of the world, because this is K creating the appearance of randomness from meaning. That is, if you saw K in that diner tapping their thighs to the rhythm of the Sampras Agassi match, it would appear random but there is an underlying structure that you cannot see. The difference between the tennis match and the connections perceived is that Kay knows the underlying reason for each tap. But we're certainly led to draw a connection, to draw parallels between the two experiences. One is soothing because knowledge is complete. One is upsetting because knowledge is incomplete. And I should say too, and this is not close reading, but just an observation from my own experience, from his description, I immediately and irrevocably picture Alan Scarpio as a young-ish, early 2000s, love actually Bridget Jones era Hugh Grant. That is in my head and will be forever. This scene with Scarpio, I think, is a fun enough character exercise, and we're presented with a man who no longer needs to moderate his thought process in order to accommodate others if, indeed, he ever did. The rhubarb, the Gary Busey, the public outburst, the Dante, these things are incidental. They're a stream of consciousness which will, in part, serve some narrative purpose, but is really, I think, an insight into the making of connections, confirming for us that this is the kind of person who would follow sign and signal in the pursuit of rabbits. The Dante thing is, I suppose, a little different because when Kay quotes the Inferno, he responds that it wouldn't have been fun to look it up, which absolutely situates him in a different generation than Kay. It situates him in that pre-internet day, back when the value of knowing a fact was innate. 
And we might readily assume that he is testing K here too to determine their strength according to the metrics which he himself values. Hey, K, do you know things? That is not significant to you as a young person in this generation, but it is significant to me as an older person who formed these opinions and values prior to the advent of the internet. It is also, we should note, the first part of the tenth canto of Inferno that Kay quotes. The tenth iteration of the game has ended and we are waiting on the eleventh. The tenth canto of Inferno features a discussion between Dante and Farinata, a Florentine politician. Most importantly, we learn that the heretics bound in this part of the sixth circle of hell can see the future, but not the present. That may be significant later. We leave the diner and get some high-powered exposition from Kay, completely different from the theatrical narrative woven in the first chapter. This is just a block paragraph of facts. You'll note again that Kay tells us that they tell Scorpio about Hazel, but for the second time now, we are not told about Hazel. Kay and Scorpio agree to meet the following morning, which we will get in next week's reading. We conclude this week's reading, though, with the second of Hazel's missives an account of a stamp from a country that does not exist, but is nonetheless beautiful. Quote, There's something about the stamp that makes you feel strange, like you know you've seen it before, like you've been aware of its existence your entire life. Picking out what's important from the static they use to confuse us is a key aspect of achieving success in the game of life. This game isn't so different. We might wonder, of course, about the static on the radio back in 1999, about the buzz which fills Kay's ears when they get close to the radio signal, and then again in the dream where they see the grey figure. One final note. It is possible that in your reading this week you notice something strange about the title page, the full-page image of the rabbit, or possibly it was the interstitial messages from Hazel. If you look at the borders of those images, you might find something rather interesting. And if you would like to recreate the voyage of discovery... If you'd like to treat this like your own personal alternate reality game rabbit hole, then I have set up a separate and spoiler-free channel on the Next Word Discord server so that you can have, as far as possible, a pure experience. If you want to avoid spoilers, I would strongly recommend not Googling anything, which I do understand might be very difficult. This is not a part of the story, to be clear, so it won't be a part of our discussion. But since you're reading the book anyway, if you're inclined, then you should perhaps follow this trail. If you want to join the discussion, head on over to patreon.com slash nextword, join the Discord server. I am kind of spoiled on where things go, so I won't be actively taking part, but I will be checking in regularly. So if any of you are interested in solving a mystery, that's the place to go. And that is going to do it for this long introductory episode. Next week, we roll up our sleeves and get to work with chapters 4 to 16, plus the interstitial note post-chapter 16 from Hazel on the subject of coincidence. A couple of quick housekeeping notes before we wrap up this episode. First, I normally post the poll which allows the patron listeners of Stars and Swords to pick the next book right at the end of the season, and I received some feedback that more time might be helpful because I know we all have a large to-be-read pile and we need to navigate that, so I'm going to post the next poll in which you can vote for the next book we will cover in this podcast sometime around the middle of January rather than waiting for the beginning of February. I think it makes sense to be as much as possible a book ahead in our scheduling and planning, particularly because I know that some of you want me to tackle some very, very long books. If you have thoughts about the next book that we should cover together in the series which will start sometime around February 11th, unless this series runs long, then get in touch via Discord or by emailing starsandswordspod at gmail.com. Secondly, 
I haven't yet recorded the bonus episode for the season on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because I have decided to make it a live show. It'll take place over on the Discord. I will broadcast audio live. And if you're interested, you can hang out in the text channel and type your questions to me as I speak. I've just posted to the Discord so that we can determine which time and date would be best. So if you have opinions, if you have preferences, head over there and let me know. The recording of the bonus session will be available as usual on the Patreon page, so don't worry if you can't make it live. Should be a good time, though. The bonus episode, as I mentioned, will be on 2005's movie adaptation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I'm still thinking about how to handle a bonus episode for rabbits, because discussing the podcast series as a whole would be fun, but maybe a little difficult, maybe a little structurally challenging. And I know that it would be another five or six hours of content for you guys to listen to, which is much longer than watching a movie. Perhaps, given the content of this week's reading, we could discuss Donnie Darko, but we still have a little while to decide. So if you have thoughts, let me know. Also, I should mention that this last week saw the 14th episode of my other podcast, The Last Star in Hollywood, in which Elizabeth Ray and I had a blast talking about the underrated, yeah, I'll say it, underrated 1992 Ron Howard movie Far and Away, if you haven't heard it yet. And if that sounds interesting, then head on over to laststarpod.com. Stars and Swords is made possible by listeners like you, and thanks to your generosity, I don't have to tell you about memory foam mattresses or apps which can cancel your Netflix subscription. If you like what you hear and you want more of it now and in the future, head on over to patreon.com slash nextword and pledge your support. Join the Discord, vote on upcoming episodes, and basically hang out with the most delightful group of people on the internet. And I'm there too. That's going to do it for this week. Until next time, well, I guess I need a quote from this book to replace our familiar C.S. Lewis quote, so we'll take this from this week's reading. In a voice like dry, sharp, crackling fire, she said the words, the exact same words I'd heard her say on that road back in 1999. She said, the door is open. Thanks for listening.